Hello, this is Tim Convoy, the pastor of New Life Community Church located in Nashville, Indiana. I'd like to thank you for visiting our podcast, and I trust that God will just bless you and encourage you and speak to your heart as you listen to this message. Thank you again for joining us, and God bless you. All right, Acts chapter 3. We had like a partial rapture here. A couple of places here. Acts chapter 3. We've been working through this chapter and we're going to be picking up verse 11 here. Are you guys just uh, quiet for a reason? Anticipation. It's making me wait. What's that? little fear. Ah, fear not. It just feels like this. Like, Sometimes that happens, but uh, it's okay. That's okay. How many, uh, let's be honest, how many, their best sleep sometimes can be just before it's time to get up Sunday morning. Man, I, I couldn't get to sleep, then I was awake at 3 o'clock, and then I was just laying, and then next thing you know, about 30 minutes before it's time to get up, I mean, I am out. And uh, boy, I was like, boy, I could just stay here and do it to the glory of God. But we're up. We're vertical, taking nourishment. That's a good thing. Amen? I ate blueberry pancakes this morning and bacon, so I'm ready to go. Got my noisy shirt on. We're ready. All right. Are you ready? Let's do it. Verse 11, chapter 3. While the beggar held on to Peter and John. Now remember, this is the beggar at the temple gate called Beautiful. He was just healed instantaneously, miraculously. Not only did he... Uh, have his bones come in line, but he had muscles placed there. He was, had coordination. He had balance. He had all these blessings from God that he did not have just minutes earlier. Now he's jumping, praising the Lord. Well, all the people start running. Well, he holds, holds on to Peter and John. All the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade or porch or portico. Uh, when Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, now that, that statement's important because it, it's clarifying just who he's speaking to. Uh, he's talking to the Jews. Men of Israel, why does this, meaning this man, surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob the, Father, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released for you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man, whom you see and know, uh, was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that Jesus Christ would suffer. Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins, notice plural, may be wiped out, 
that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send, future tense, the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he has promised long ago through his holy prophets. He's referencing the millennial kingdom to come. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Again, talk about the Israelites here. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and the covenant that God made with our fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, literally seed as in singular, all people on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Next chapter. The priests and the captains of the temple guards and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. That's why we continue. So here he's preaching. It's right in the middle of the sermon. They come rushing in while he's speaking. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed the number of men grew to about 5,000. By the way, five, the number of grace. Amen. Father, we ask your presence. I pray that your spirit would just move over us and through us and on us. I sense today some have come with some heavy burdens. I pray that you would relieve them of those burdens. I pray, Father, that you would speak to those who may be here or listening over the Internet that have not yet been saved. I ask that you will speak to them of their great need that they must listen to everything that Jesus has to say. Father, I ask that you'll move in such a way that your Spirit would have free course in our midst, that we would uh, be energized by your Spirit, move forward, encouraged, blessed. Father, you know what to do. All we need to do is rest in you. So Lord, hide me behind the cross. May people see Jesus. May they hear your Spirit. May you add to the message everything that belongs and take from it everything that does not. And meet all of our needs, Lord. It's amazing. You can meet each need of each person through the same message in different ways. And Lord, it may be a need that we see today. It may be something that's going to surface tomorrow or the next day. But Lord, there's something here that if we would just find that nugget and tuck it away for now or for later, you will use it. So Lord, bless we ask and move we pray and anoint us with your Holy Spirit's presence. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen and Amen. Now, before we really delve into the message. Last week, you recall, I mentioned that when Peter and John talked to the crippled man, uh, they extended their hand and he said, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, stand, rise up. He was very specific in which Jesus he was referencing. And it's interesting when you go through this text, uh, again, he's very specific of what God he's referencing. 
He says, I'm referencing the God of our father, uh, Abraham, our father Isaac, and our father Jacob. It's very important. And last week I mentioned this importance because uh, we have a thing starting to rise called Chrislam. Anyone ever heard of Chrislam? Okay, a few of us. Chrislam is the merging together of Islam and Christianity. And it's saying, well, it's, you know, they both can coexist. As a matter of fact, there's a large church in uh, Richmond, Virginia, where the pastor says, well, it's the same thing. You know, God and of the Bible and Allah are the same. We look at it through the lens of Jesus. They look at it through the lens of Muhammad, but it's the same God. Is that true? No, it's not true. Any more than it's the same Jesus. If it doesn't line up with the Jesus of the Bible, it's a different Jesus, right? If it's not the God of the Bible, then it's a different God, right? And you say, well, really, is this really happening? Corey, pull up a slide I... Yesterday, last Sunday afternoon, his billboard. You ever, you ever seen it? Something like that? It says, Jesus is Muslim. Yes, we use the present tense. Seek the truth at askamuslim.com. And these are big billboards going out wide to change the thinking of people. Now, McDonald's didn't put it out. It just happened to be a billboard right behind McDonald's. But when you see that... Don't start falling for the deception of the evil one. Jesus of the Muslim Jesus is not the same Jesus of the Bible Jesus. Amen? Their Jesus, they believe that, they believe Jesus is going to return by their definition of Jesus. But when he comes back, he's going to tell all the Christians you are wrong and that Muhammad is right and to listen to this prophet. That's what they say he's going to say. So anyways, I put that out there because you think, well, you're just... Splitting hairs here in the text when he specifically says, identifies Jesus or identifies God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, I don't believe I'm splitting hairs, and I believe that we need to know these things. Amen? Amen? Because when you start seeing this rise up in Christianity, and they're preaching it in churches these days, wow. It's not going to be preached here, I'll tell you that. They're not the same thing. Amen? All right. Enough of that. But I want you to know. Message today is... Make a U-turn, Y-O-U. Make a U-turn. Interesting, when I worked through this text, that when I started noticing a recurring word. Whenever you see a word recurring, uh, there's a reason. Maybe God's trying to emphasize something there, here. And it's not often that you see this word used this many times in these few short verses. But when you go through here, you count the word you or yours. You or yours will occur 25 times in 14 verses, both in the NIV and the King James. It'll say ye, but it's the same thing. He's saying you or yours 25 times in 14 verses. Now, we, we know that we have an expression that says it's not all about you. As some people live life. You ever met some that live life where it's all about them? Whatever it is, it's all about them. They get, you know, the center of the universe revolves around them. And we say it's not all about you or it's not all about me. And in the big picture, that's true. It's not. But in a smaller context of right here, what God's saying, guess what? It's all about you. It's all about the audience that was listening to Peter, and 25 times God will use this word you, and it's interesting, he moves it through three uh, consecutive uh, phases, if you will. He speaks of it in three different settings, and they're, they're progressive. They kind of go from bad, or from worse, to better, to best. And so God speaks to them 
And he points out this idea of you, 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 you. Now, when it comes to this question, and I think this is one of the reasons I appreciate that God has this text here. When it comes to who killed Jesus, who is to blame? Who is the guilty one when it came to Jesus' death? Now, here's the problem. For many years, because of this text, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, blame the Jews. The Gentiles say, uh, you're the one, it's your fault, because you did it, and even Peter says you did it. Well, this isn't the only text in the Bible, you know. In other texts, you're going to find that the, the fingers also point at the Gentiles, because they turned him over to Pilate. Pilate could have let him go. Pilate did not let him go. Instead, Pilate was the one, the Gentile, ordered his crucifixion. Are you with me on this? So when you look at life and you, and you ask this question, who killed Jesus or who is guilty, well, you find that the, the Gentiles are blaming the Jews, the Jews are blaming the Gentiles, the liberals are still blaming Bush. It's, you know, it, it's a perpetual cycle. It's always someone else. It's always that one. It's always this one. It's never you. But the fact of the matter is, who is really guilty? Who is at fault? Who does bear the blame? And the answer to that is you and I. Every single person that has ever sinned bears the blame for Jesus' death. You see, if there was only one person, if there's only one here that sinned, and let's say no one else in the world sinned, only one person sinned, I want to tell you something, Jesus would still come and die for that one person's sin. Right? Because God's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to the point of repentance. That means a U-turn. That means you're going one way and you're thinking one way. You change your thinking. That's what the word repent means. To change one's mind. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of action and direction. It means you're going this way and now you say, you know what? I've been thinking this about Jesus. I've been thinking this about God. I've been thinking this about spiritual matters. And I no longer think in this way. I'm not putting my back to God and my face to sin. I'm now turning and putting my back to the world and my face to God. That's the idea here. So when it comes to who is to blame, it's very easy to find out who is to blame for the death of Jesus. All we have to do is look in the mirror, right? Unless you haven't sinned, that is. If you haven't sinned, you're not to blame. Is anyone here qualified? I think I told you, I only met one man who said he never sinned. I did. He, he was a police officer in Florida, and he said, I've never sinned in my life. He said, there's only two people holier than I am. I said, really? And he said, a pope and a rabbi. That was his cause. Okay. But he said, well, I got some bad news and I got some good news. I said, the bad news is only sinners get to get saved and go to heaven. But the good news is you just committed your first one. Because lying is a sin. And I quoted out of first John. He's like, oh man, you know. But there's very few like that. Most of us said, yeah, I realize that I'm guilty. But we keep our guilt to ourselves. We don't realize our guilt goes all the way back to the cross, doesn't it? And His grace and blessing comes from the cross all the way to us in the present, doesn't it? Aren't you glad that it went both directions? When we look at our text, 
We notice in this message Peter gave. I mean, here's this guy who's been healed. He's jumping around. He's excited. He's praising God. People see this, and they didn't just, well, I think I'll just stroll over and see what's going on. They all come running. They're rushing to him, and, and, and the guy that's jumping around, he's like, ah! I don't know if he grabbed them guys for balance or what, or protect me, you know. He he latches on to Peter, latches on to John, hangs on to them. The crowd runs at him, and Peter's like, whoa, you men of Israel, what are you doing? Why are you astonished at this? Why does this surprise you? And then he'll go on, and apparently they stopped, and I had to listen to him. But first, in verses 12 to 15, he lays out the indictment. And he holds nothing back. He pulls no punches. When they ran up to him, he said, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or our own godliness, we did this thing? So they were, they were uh, surprised at what happened. Then they were confused how it happened. They said, well, this guy, listen, one of the dangers in Christianity is to think that man is the healer. Man is never the healer. God is always the healer. All right? When we get our eyes off of God and think that by some godliness or some way, this guy, whether it's on a pulpit or behind a TV set, wherever it might be, that somehow he is the one that's doing this, we're in trouble. (laughs) We got our eyes off the, the, the healer and, and, and we, we forget that man doesn't heal. What, what do we have? We have no power, right? We have no godliness that can change a crippled man, uh, to, to stand and rise. But in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he has all the power and we can declare the power for that healing. Amen? <laughs> That's what Peter and John did. He goes, That's all we did. And you're astonished? And you're surprised and you look at us as if we did it? And then he goes on to speak of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he says, you, to the crowd, you handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate when Pilate was going to let him go. And you guys said, no, don't let him go. Give us Barabbas, the murderer, instead of Jesus, the healer. He said, you chose the murderer. And he said, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for the murder to be released. You, he comes right out and says, killed the author of life. You killed the author of life, the holy one of God, the one that should have been let go, the one that should have been free. You did it. I love the next part of 15, however, says, but God raised him up. Amen. You killed Jesus, but God raised Jesus. Amen. Uh, tell you what, we can make such a mess out of something, but if it wasn't for, but God. Amen. Tim, you did this, but God did this. Man, I praise God every time there has to be a but God coming into my life. Praise God that he has to interject. Okay. Let me interject here. Let me fix what you just did, Tim. Let me correct the direction you just went. Let me help you with this problem. Because in yourself, in your own godliness, in your own life, you have no power in and of yourself. Left to our own devices, we would all be a wreck, wouldn't we? We could be a wreck just what little bit of devices we're left to. But if the Lord just said, hey, I saved you, I'll see you in heaven when you get there. 
What a mess we'd be, right? But yet God continues, but God continues to interject into our lives and continues to right our wrongs and fix our problems and patch our wound, our injuries and wounds. And he, he's the one that's constantly, you know, got us by right hand and picks us up lest we stub our foot against a, a stone and injure ourselves. So constantly he's doing this. But the indictment still goes out. It says, you were surprised. You were confused. You handed him over. You disowned him. You chose a murder, and you killed the author of life. Interesting. Six indictments. <laughs> Number of man, isn't it? Six times. You, 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 and you. This is what you did, he tells the people. Boy, you, you talk about the hot spotlight of guilt being put on you. Have you ever, you know, it's interesting, Chuck mentioned this, this uh Text. Matter of fact, I was thinking this. The scripture he used was running through my mind this morning, even. But have you ever felt that the hot light on you for something, <laughs> and, and it's like, Poof. and now it's one thing if, like I said, we didn't do it. But when we did do it, you feel it. Don't you? I mean, you feel the the heat inside you well up. Like, oh boy. Not that we've ever done anything, but I talk about other people in other churches. You know. What's amazing is when we read this. There is something going on that you cannot see, and I cannot see. We don't see it, but it's happening. There is some movement going on that we don't realize that it's moving. God is doing something to the naked eye. It's invisible, but yet it was happening. And the answer is the working of the Holy Spirit was taking place in this text. Matter of fact, in John chapter 16, the Holy Spirit was working while Peter was preaching. John 16, do we have that text up? Let's pull it up. I want you to read what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit and when the Holy Spirit comes. By the way, did the Holy Spirit come at Pentecost? Yes. Is this after Pentecost we're reading about in Acts? Yes. So here's the very context that we're reading about. Here's what Jesus said about it. Jesus, let's start at verse 7. But I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go, the counselor uh, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. All right? When he comes, he will convict, that means to point the finger of condemnation, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin in righteousness and judgment in regard to sin because man does not believe in me in regard to righteousness because I am going to the Father in other words he did the right thing where you go or excuse me I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer and in regards to judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned alright now verse 12 but first let's, let's clarify to whom is he speaking there in verses 8 through 11? Who? Or the world, right? He convicts the who? World. This is the world of the unsaved run by the prince of the world, uh, Satan himself. But he convicts the lost mankind. He condemns them for sin, for righteousness, and judgment to come. So he points a finger of condemnation, puts the hot light of guilt on them. You are guilty. 
Listen, if you do not realize your guilt before God, then whatever you think you did to get saved, you didn't get saved. You understand? Because until you realize you're lost, you never see your need to be saved. It's salvation is not just saying a prayer. You realize that. It's not just going through the motion, not just coming forward. I know people in, in other churches in other states, they say, well, I went forward one day. Well, okay. Well, what happened? Well, they did, nothing happened. I, but I know I went forward. <laughs> Listen, going forward in a service does not save you. Faith saves you. Faith in Jesus Christ's work on the cross. And when we recognize our guilt is when we look for His grace. All right? The Spirit of God, He said, when He comes... There in Pentecost, when he comes, he's going to start convicting the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. Verse 11, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. So now he's talking directly to disciples. But when the spirit of truth comes, when does he come? Pentecost. Has he come? Yes. When he comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of his own. He will speak only of what he hears, and he will tell you what is to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. You follow me on this? So he, he has two separate contrasts here. He said to the world, when the Spirit comes, in regards to the world, he is going to convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Right? But then he says, but when the Spirit comes to you, he will lead you into all truth. He will teach you the things that are mine. He will make known unto you that which belongs to me. Do you see the contrast here? One is under condemnation. The other is under counseling, if you will. Revelation. When, when we are lost, we stand under condemnation. That's the Holy Spirit's role in the lost person's heart. But as a saved person, we are therefore now under no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Now he goes, now the Spirit's role in your life is to reveal Jesus to you is to make the things of God known unto you. It's to lead you. This is the way. Walk ye in it. The Holy Spirit of God, His role in, in the life of the believer is to point them into all truth. Now, do we feel bad when we sin? Of course we do. Of course we do. We always feel bad when we hurt the one we love. Right? That's what 1 John 3.20 tells us. If our heart, not the Holy Spirit, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. But if our heart condemns us not, we have peace with God. You see, when, when we're doing things that we ought not to be doing, uh, should we feel bad? Sure we should feel bad. You shouldn't feel good when you hurt the one that loves you. Amen? So, so we feel bad when we're doing something that our heart knows. That Jesus died for this sin. Our heart knows this is not right. Our heart knows this. And our heart will condemn us for it. And, and say, Tim, look at you. And the devil will join in and say, yeah, look at you. And then the devil's going to do this. He's going to blame it on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's convicting you of this sin. He said, the whole, you are over here. This is how the Holy Spirit deals with you. And then we get this notion about God that somehow God's mad at us. Somehow God doesn't want to talk to us. Somehow God doesn't want to see my face. 
somehow, you know, God's not as gracious as I thought he was. The amazing part is when the heart, our own heart, through our conscience, conscience, con, with, science, knowledge, with knowledge, conscience. When our conscience, with knowledge, the law of God is written on every man's heart, right? Romans chapter 2. So when we violate our conscience, our conscience, with knowledge, we know this isn't right. And, and in so doing, we feel bad about that. But friends, I'm here to tell you that is not the Holy Spirit convicting a sinner, or excuse me, a saint, because that person is holy in Christ. The Holy Spirit is not putting the spotlight on you and saying you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. He says he puts the spotlight on the world and says, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. What are you going to do about it? For the Christian, he says, okay, I don't point to your sin any longer. I point to the cross. This is the way. Walk ye in it. I don't point to your sin any longer. I point to the truth. Right? He will lead you into all truth. I don't point to the knowledge of your sin any longer. I point to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The more you know about God and His grace, the more we know about Jesus Christ, the more we will find ourselves not saying, you know what, I, you know, I'm free at last. I can go sin any way I want. That's not how you're going to be. You're going to say, man, if God could pour that kind of grace on me, how can I continue in sin that grace may abound? Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Right? How can I... You, so don't misunderstand me or, or the Scripture. It's not a license to go out and do whatever you want. It's a recognition and a knowledge that the Spirit of God will lead us in the truth. The Spirit of God will make Jesus known to us. He will reveal to us and work through us. To we who are saved. Amen? But to the lost, he says, I convict them. I work in their life, and I do point the finger of condemnation if you stay in this condition. And I do point the finger of righteousness that Jesus Christ is righteous, and he rose from the dead and is with the Father right now. And I do point the finger of judgment. He says, listen, there's judgment coming. If you don't get right, you will stand before a holy God undone and revealed that all of our sin for the unsaved person is just revealed before God. And every mouth will be stopped and every mouth will be closed. Right? Holy Spirit says, you're guilty. Before I was saved, He worked in my life. I didn't like hearing it. And I don't want to hear that stuff. As a matter of fact, the more I heard it, the madder I got. I won't get into all my anger issues with Christians before I got saved. But, God bless you. Let me show you in Acts chapter 9. Pre-salvational work of the Holy Spirit that's going on while Peter's preaching. In Acts chapter 9, verse 5, it reads this. Paul's knocked off his high horse. We all have done that before. On the road to Damascus. Gets knocked off his horse by a blinding light. The Lord shows up. Ask the question, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He says, Who art thou, Lord? Saul asked. And he answered, I am Jesus whom you persecuted. It is hard for you to kick against the ox goad. Oh, that's right. I forgot. It's not in the NIV. Turn over to chapter 26. I purposely read it because I don't have a problem with what the NIV says. I have a problem with what it doesn't say. Why did you take that out? 
Because they say, well, it's not found in most manuscripts. Do you know if you did a Bible today based on most manuscripts out there, can you imagine what that thing would look like? So just to show you again that it's there, chapter 26, verse 14. Here Paul is giving his testimony again. And Paul giving his testimony, verse 14, he says, We all fell to the ground, Paul's saying, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, interesting, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. All right? King James, others will say, kick against the pricks, the prodding, the ox goad. It's a shame that they took it out of chapter 9 because it's still in his testimony. Jesus speaking, and Jesus says, there was something going on in your life, Paul, before you got knocked off the horse. And it was a ministry of the Holy Spirit that was going on that you were fighting against. And it's called the pricking, the prodding of the ox goad of the Holy Spirit. I need a volunteer. Thanks, Chuck. Come here a minute. Just happen to have an ox goad. Come on. Oh, yeah, baby. It's funny. Gabe was trying to figure out by looking at this what it was and where it came from. He's smelling it, cuts it. He couldn't. He had a couple guesses, but it took a while before I told him it was from Slovakia. It is, from the country of Slovakia. When I was there in September, whenever you harvest an animal for the first time, they have an initiation. Yeah, three whacks. Yeah. So I said, I got to keep that. Come over here, please, Chuck. Right, no, 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 no. All right. An ox goad is a stick sharpened at one end. They just happen to have it. Behold, the ox. Turn around. Yeah, it won't hurt. It won't hurt. I won't, I won't hurt you. Now, they were used with stubborn oxes or animals to move them along. All right, so now if Chuck was here, he, he's really nervous. Look that way, I wonder. But he don't want to go, and you do this number, all right? And I'm gentle, right? Now, come back. Now you get more stubborn. And the, and the more stubborn you get, the more you start doing this number, right? And then you don't like this when it's happening as you, when you're an ox. So what does the ox do sometimes? Let me ask you a question. What happens when you get the ox goad and you don't like it and you start kicking against it? It hurts even more, doesn't it? As a matter of fact, the funny part is not me doing it. It's him doing it. He's really inflicting the pain. The more He's not a good kicker, but you get the idea. I also don't have this behind me. The Scripture speaks to the Apostle Paul. He said, Paul, it's hard for you to what? Not move forward, to kick. You, you've been kicking against my prodding all this time. And he says, it hurts, doesn't it? And Paul would say, yeah, it did. But you know what? You and I had no idea, nor did the Christians at that time know that God's Spirit was prodding Paul along that time. We didn't know that. The people with him didn't know that. No one around him, the Christians didn't know. He was going out killing Christians. And the Holy Spirit's prodding him, and he's fighting the Holy Spirit. He says, I don't want to hear that. What is he prodding him with? Sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. 
and he's kicking against his nine like give it up for the ox good job good job ox mm. the holy spirit does a work in the lives of these people here in acts 3 while peter was preaching the spirit was prodding and the spirit's going move along move along and he's like no i don't want to do that i tell you when you resist and fight the Holy Spirit, resistance is futile, right? And yet we keep fighting. We keep kicking. 5,000 people that day said, you know what? I'm not going to keep fighting. I'm not going to keep kicking. I'm not going to keep saying, no, I don't want to do it. I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to move. 5,000 people that day stopped kicking. 5,000 people moved from getting under that hot light of condemnation to stand in that wonderful grace of God that frees them from all sin and unrighteousness. So here that day, many were literally set free even from the prodding of that ox goat. Now you say, well, I'm already saved. But you know, I, I believe that we kick against truth as well. When you're confronted with truth, that's what these guys were. They were confronted with truth, and they were confronted with fault, right? Blame. It was, it was their fault. When we are confronted with something, I'm not talking to condemnation of the Holy Spirit. I'm talking when, when someone comes to you and says, hey, you're the man. You're the one that did this or that or said this or said that, etc. The question is, how do you respond? How, how do you, re- you know, we, we like to say, well, oh, I'm a believer now. I respond by, thank you, brother. Thank you, sister, for correcting me. I feel so much better now. Don't you? Here's how I think we respond. Well, other people in other churches. First, I see what I call the blame game. The blame game goes like this. When the heat comes on you, you divert the blame by pointing at someone else. This is like the oldest game in the book. This is what happened when Adam was confronted by God, and God said, Adam, what are you doing eating that? And Adam said, the woman thou gave me. Right? He's like, don't look at me. I shouldn't be the one to blame. Look at Eve. As a matter of fact, if it wasn't for Eve, I wouldn't have done it. As a matter of fact, if it wasn't for you giving me Eve, it would never have happened. Right? Is that what he did? The woman you gave me ate me out of house at home. Right? So I had to leave the garden. <laughs> All right, forget that. The blame game. Our other response is what I call the dodge diversion. In order to get out from under that white light of truth, sometimes we divert attention. We dodge it by diverting and say, yeah, but did you see that person? Now, we're not blaming the other person for doing something. We're just saying, oh, yeah, all right, I was wrong, but did you see them? I don't know if you've ever seen anyone ever do that. Divert the attention off you, put it onto someone else. That's the dodge diversion. We also have what I call the makeup man or maneuver. The makeup maneuver is simply make up a good excuse to justify what you did. Man, you better make something up quick. You better come up with something. You better come justify. Well, yeah, I did it, but I wouldn't have done it if you didn't do this. You see? I don't know if you've ever seen anyone ever do that. The blame comes on. The fault is there. 
but we can't dodge it. So you have a look at them. We can't blame and say, well, it's that person's fault. So what we do is we make up this maneuver and say, yeah, but what I did was justified because I didn't know. Sure, I was speeding, but there was a tree covering that speed limit sign and I didn't see it. <laughs> yeah. The Holy Spirit is not looking for the blame game. He's not looking for the dodge diversion or the makeup maneuver. The Holy Spirit looks for the own it option. What I call the own it option. That means accept the blame and do something about it. Accept the fault and say, yeah, I own it, and do something about it. Change it. This is a very rare option, especially in government. You never see it used hardly in government. <laughs> All right? It's always the blame game or the dodge or the give the excuse. But the own it option. He says, this is, this is it. Own it and do something about it. If we don't own it and do something about it, we find that whatever it is comes back around a lot of times full circle, even when we do own it. I've mentioned before the difficulty in preaching. And the difficulty in preaching is not working and preparing a sermon. The difficulty in preaching is you often have to deal with whatever it is you're preaching on. Remember that time with contentment I had to deal with? Yeah. So guess what happens this week? Somehow, someone got the impression in town and was overheard by other members of the church. The other people don't go to the church. Uh, but this is what they overheard. Paraphrase. Oh, Pastor Tim, he preached about loving the Lord one minute and he'll shoot you over stealing his food the next minute. When I hear that, at first I was like, where do they get off saying that? First, I want to go through the other options, you know. But then I realized something. Perception is reality, but it may not be actuality. Perceived reality. If that's how you perceive it to you, it's reality. It may not be actuality, but it's still perceived reality. There's a reason why someone would perceive that. And if that's the case, then that means that somehow I gave that wrong perception in my conversation. If I don't know. You know, I don't know. But I know this, that one, I would not shoot someone who is hungry and needed food. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. When I needed clothes, you gave me something to wear. By the way, in Matthew 25, when he says it, all dealing with end time events. <laughs> and I certainly wouldn't shoot somebody over stealing my food. Now, if they came to Injure my family. Jesus loves them. And I will pray for them. But I will protect myself. Whatever. I'm not saying you have to say amen. You'll say, well, what if you... Aren't you supposed to turn the other cheek? Well, let's talk about insults. You used to slap people in the face and insult them. You used to take the gloves out. Yeah, people insult you, turn the other cheek, let them insult you. They're going to sue you. You want my coat? Here's my shirt. But the, the fact is, even though this is how I truly believe that I would, indeed helps, I would kill you, but God forbid I should never have to get, that any of us should ever have to put, be put in a position where you had to defend your own life, especially through taking a life. But 
if people think that of me, then maybe somewhere I gave the wrong impression that I would shoot someone over food. And so for that, I humbly say, I'm sorry. I am. If I ever gave the impression I'm some kind of gun-toting cowboy, can't wait to shoot anybody, that's not me. And I apologize for that. And if you hear it, you can tell them to come talk to me, and I'll apologize to them for giving that wrong perception. So I look at this, and I go through this mess. I hear that, and I go, oh, you know what? Own it, Tim. Own it. If that's how they perceive it, that's reality. Even if it's not actuality, it's reality. So I own it, and I do ask for forgiveness in that area. So if I gave you that perception, would you forgive me? I'm serious. Would you? Uh, no, I'm just asking. No, I just want, I want to know to say, hey, you know what? Maybe I misunderstood him because I do not want to give that impression. And I, and I humbly, I said, man, alive now, i got to eat some humble pie in this sermon. And that's okay. I'll eat it because I own it. And so anyways, that being said, I thought, all right. All right, ready to move on? <sighs> Peter lays it out on the outside and the Holy Spirit works on the inside. He laid out the indictment, but it's very interesting. He went from indictment, God bless you, to ignorance. And I'm just going to wrap it up here. But he said, verse 17, you acted in ignorance without knowledge. You didn't know better and he said, your leaders acted in ignorance. But did that mean that they were innocent because they were ignorant? No. Any more than I was, you know, when, uh, you know, yeah, okay, I, I did get a ticket one time. And I was driving, it was a brand new four-lane road, beautiful, made for speed. And guess what? Highway department forgot to put up speed limit signs and the whole thing. They went, and I, I'm, how can they do this? I went and videotaped the whole thing. I went to the judge. I went, look, there's not even a speed limit sign. However, when you're inside the town limits, the speed limit's automatically 30 unless it's a divided highway. This is in Florida. So I paid the fine. They didn't put the charge on my license. All was well. Even a cop come up and said, man, I'm really sorry. I guess we never did look for speed limit signs. A week later, they were up. Anyways. But my ignorance of that didn't make me innocent. They were ignorant, but they were not innocent. And by the way, it's interesting, in the Old Testament sacrifices, uh, there were only uh, sacrifices for the sins of ignorance, not for the sins of a high hand or the willful sin. The daily sacrifices offered for sins of ignorance, Leviticus 4, Leviticus 5, Numbers 15 will tell us. But while man acted in ignorance without knowledge, God acted in knowledge without ignorance. That's what this takes. He said, you acted in ignorance, but verse 18, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold and literally foreknown. So God did not act in ignorance. He knew it was going to happen. And he sent his son anyways to suffer at your hand, even though he knew what you were going to do to his son. And he says, and when God sent him, he knew he would suffer. He knew you would kill him, but God raised him. And God the Father showed his grace to man by sending his son to us who did not deserve it. And that's why through the ignorance, he then speaks of the invitation. He says, you 
are under condemnation. You are guilty. You are, are this. But, but God did this for you, sending His Son to suffer for you. And then verse 19, He says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins, three things. One will be wiped out. Wiped out. Two, that the time of refreshing may come from the Lord. Three, that He may send, future tense, the Christ who has been approved, appointed for you. So God gives the invitation here. He says, listen, you were going the wrong way, and when you were confronted with truth, He says, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to do a blame game? Are you going to dodge this? Are you going to divert the attention? Or are you going to own it? And you can say, yeah, that's me. Are you going to realize that God, even in your ignorance, did something for you in sending His Son to die for your sins? And He says, if you will stop how you think about this and turn from your sin and repent, turn to God. God says to them and to us, I will wipe out your sins. Amen? Wipe them out. That whole shopping list of sins over here. The whole handwriting of ordinance that was against us and was contrary to us. And he took out away from us and nailed it to the cross, Peter tells us. All that, he says, that's the crime of the one who was crucified is always put above their, their cross. And God said, I nailed the crime above Jesus' cross and it was your sin and mine. He says, but that's all there and it's all done and it's all paid for. He says, and I, he will wipe out your sins. And he says to, to them, and there will come a time of refreshing. There will come a time nationally, and there will come a time individually. For if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. And he says, behold, look, all things have become new. Amen? Corinthians. Don't make me come down here. If you are in Christ... The old you, it doesn't say, is passing away. He said, the old you has passed away. And you are a new creation. It literally is the word poem. God rewrote the poem of your life. And he says, now look, all things are becoming new. That was a done deal. It's over. And this is a continued action. Things are constantly becoming new in our lives. He said, there will be a time of refreshing. And then he tells them, and he will send future tense Christ to the nation of Israel. And when they look upon him whom they have pierced, in that day they will be saved. Just like that, the nation of Israel realized that this is the anointed Son of God. This is the Christ. And that nation will turn to him, and instantly he will bring the refreshing to them, and he will set up his millennial kingdom uh, that he tells. That's why he said right now he's in heaven, but he's waiting to come back to set up his kingdom. He said that will happen. But friends, let me tell you, he said future tense, Christ will come. But verse 20, he says, or verse 26, when God raised him up, raised up his servant and sent, that's past tense, first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked way. He will come in the future, he tells them, these men of Israel. He says, but he has already sent him and he sent him to bless you. How many today believe that God sent his son to bless you? How many times do we find ourselves living under the curse? How many times do we find ourselves living under condemnation? And how many times do we find ourselves listening to the devil that says God's mad at you and, and, and God saw what you just did and he's upset and you can't go to God again? 
How many times do we find ourselves living under the curse rather than living under the blessing? Listen, Jesus Christ took the curse for us. And all the curses on Him, there's no curse left for you and I. Amen? And they praise God. And He said, He sent Him to take the curse so that He could bless you in the present. Not just future tense of the coming kingdom. But he says, right now, right here, right this way. And friends, today, I want to call you to live under the blessings and stop living under the curse. Live under the grace of God found in Jesus Christ and stop living under the condemnation of the evil one. And like Chuck said, that's probably the only time the devil doesn't have to lie is when he talks about our guilt and our sin. The only time he doesn't lie is when he condemns us to the Father. But Jesus Christ the righteous says, yeah, I died for that sin too. I love it, Chuck. The reason he he keeps doing it because he doesn't get grace, right? He doesn't get it. He doesn't comprehend it. How can you do this? How could you just let them go? He says, because I put it all on my son, that's how. He said, my son became the curse so that they could become the blessing. You read chapter 28, 29, and 30. Especially chapter, actually 27, 28, 29 of Deuteronomy sometime. And read the blessings and the curses. And that's the amazing part. Is Here's all the curses that have come. And then he says, and here's all the blessings that will come. And there with all the curses, they would proclaim all the curses, and the other ones on the other side of the mountain in response only answered back, Amen. I believe. I concur. But what's interesting, after they pronounced all the curses, they said Amen, but they never pronounced the blessings. That's why the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, ends the very last word is the word curse. And the very last word of the New Testament is the word amen. The blessings are yea and amen. Amen. But under the Old Covenant, it's the curse. He became the curse for us that we might receive the blessings. So my encouragement is to say, you know, Lord, I need your blessings. I know they're in Christ. They're not in my own goodness. You don't bless me because I behave and because I'm good. You bless me because you're good. Help me to live in that reality. Help me to know my Savior, to know my, my Jesus, to know what your Spirit's doing. And help me just to receive your blessings in Christ. Get our heads high, put our chin up, and just say, you know what? Yeah, the world knocks me down, but Jesus always picks me up. Amen? Father, in Jesus' name, we proclaim that we are under the blessings of Jesus Christ, the Holy One. We are under the grace of God that has enveloped us and changed us, and we sit today or stand today in your presence, holy in Jesus Christ. And Father, in Christ, Ephesians tells us, are all the riches of glory. Father, help us to rest in that reality. Help us not get sucked into the devil's condemnation. Help us not to live under that that dark cloud of guilt. Help us not to, to believe something that's not true. Help us to believe the truth and by your Spirit, continue to be patiently pointing us to truth. Work in our midst today. Maybe there's someone here that needs your healing touch. Maybe physically. Maybe emotionally. Maybe they've been beat down so much and they've been beating themselves up. It's been so hard. Today I pray for their deliverance. Today I pray that they will just lay that beating aside, know that Jesus took all the beating for us, and we can stand holy in Christ and blessed in Christ. 
Move in our midst, we ask. Save the lost that may be here. If there's even one that does not know, they have eternal life. May today be the day of salvation. Move in our midst, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.